So that's the kind of people we're dealing with. Honest, you know, obviously there's you know, conspiracy and power at some levels, but at the grassroots level of neoclassicism, these are mostly political liberals who bought into enough of the stuff in grad school to bother to stay with this and believe that they're still helping the world with these things that make no sense to me whatsoever on, on a very, it, it, the things you explained a minute ago. Uh, very quickly, you would come to the realization, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, yeah, and, and this is, they have in place measures to make sure that these problems don't arise, but it doesn't occur to them. So I don't know what to tell you. I, it turned me off when I was in grad school, and so I, I didn't buy into it, but lots of, I think, really well-meaning, good people do, and I don't get it. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. that it is it is always a net loss to society that must be addressed by throwing the economy into recession. The only kind of inflation that would affect is inflation that's the side effect of a good thing, so leave it alone. And the, the, the inflation that's the side effect of a bad thing, like invading you know, the invasion of Ukraine, is not helped by throwing the economy into recession. So, so I have a lot of, of big problems with the neoclassical approach to inflation, but they really center on, on their definition of inflation, I guess, and their conception. So you, we've talked a lot about sort of inflation being not always the same in terms of like how it's composed in terms of like it could be the result of good things and it could have good effects as well. Uh, you gave the example of, you know, if the price of food goes up, that could be a good thing if it induces more food production. What about the, the flip side? What about when the price of something goes up that won't necessarily induce more production, but we don't necessarily care because that's not what our goals are. For example, what if, um, 
you know, if the price of, of diamond jewelry right. rose up right. for whatever reason, technically that could have some impact on the CPI, but is it something that we should care about either from yeah. a policy perspective or when sort of, you know, modeling the, uh, you know, the impacts of various events on inflation as a whole? Right. No, we, we, we should not care less. I mean, that, you know, in fact, uh, I was showing my class last semester this, the latest inflation figures that come out. I said, let's look at the actual categories. Let's not just look at the final number. Let's look at the breakdown of all the individual numbers. And most of it was being driven by food and by um, uh, fuel prices. Okay, this makes sense. All right. And, and so what do we do about it? Well, nothing that the Fed currently has in their you know, set of, of standard uh, procedures in any way addresses those. And if we were to discover that the prices were actually going up, being driven by a rise in the price of diamonds, then we don't care at all. All right. So you have to break it down by sector and see which sectors are gaining, which sectors are losing, which sectors are the origin of the inflation. But they treat it all the same. And it's all bad, and including the one that could help us you know, stop the destruction of the middle class that's way up there. Oh, no, wages might be bid up. That's okay. I mean, right. it's a great irony to me that one of the times the market system actually, in my opinion, works pretty well, we interfere with it. Hey, leave that alone. Let those prices go up. I was uh, reading a, a article by a, I don't know if he's an economist or, or a journalist. journalist. He's, a, he's a commentator named Josh Barrow, uh, and he was talking about inflation and sort of responding to the claim that, oh, it's okay because it's all in used car prices. And his claim, his, his response to that claim was that we can't say that if used car prices had stayed the same, then we wouldn't have seen inflation because that money would have just gone elsewhere. And I, I, I take issue with this claim because it seems like he's treating the economy is this sort of smooth, frictionless thing where money has the same effects regardless of what you're you're doing with it, and I and I feel like that misses some of the the market dynamics we're seeing, where some factors, some aspects of the economy have more space in terms of capacity utilization, and and you know, or, or different market structures, like maybe there's more people competing, where it's easier to get prices driven down. Or maybe some things just honestly have less demand than others. Like maybe, yeah. you know, you, you're going to buy gas at whatever price because you have to heat your home, but maybe you wouldn't buy a second car even if you had an extra $30,000 right, right. around. No, I think that's I, – I, I had not heard that argument, but to me it makes no sense whatsoever because it implies uh, uh, the argument that, well, if they hadn't bid up car, used car price, it would have bid something else up instead, implies that – that, this is, that the problem was from a demand side, that the problem was that people suddenly had this extra cash that they clearly didn't have before, or they wouldn't have bid up the car prices, that they then decided to buy cars and they bid it up, when in fact, we know dang well what the problem was. It was that we can't get the computer chips to build new cars. And so new car production was way down because of the supply chain issues, and used cars became bid up tremendously because that's what we had available in stock. So it wasn't that people suddenly decided, you know, a 1970 Pontiac would be really cool, uh, you know, when they sort of bid this up. It's that the supply of cars had gone down. And so, no, the money wouldn't have just been, if the supply had been there, 
then that money would have just gone into that same place it was going anyway. And it would have, you know, and this is a lot of this was during when the economy was in bad shape, too. So it's not like people were running out to buy an extra car. Um, you have to break it down and think about what caused it. And used car prices going up was not caused by some surge in people's incomes. You know, there's also that myth going around that the stock market was bid up by the uh, stimuli that we gave to consumers, you know, like the $1,200 checks and that sort of thing. Well, they mm -hmm. all just put it in the stock market. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not true. I, I can't prove it on a case-by-case -case basis, but since, you know, 90% of stocks are owned by like, you know, 20% of people, maybe mm -hmm. their checks went into this, but it might have also had to do with the fact that the Fed was actively supporting the, you know, the stock market. So, you know, you end up blaming the victim with this. It's not as obvious but that argument that, well, if they hadn't bid up the car price, they'd have bid something else up, almost feels like victim blaming, that, that it was the consumer's fault that, you know, that this happened. All right. So, yeah, this has been a great conversation about sort of the composition of inflation. But let's, so let's take one step backwards in our sort of causal analysis of the mainstream models looking at yeah. GDP and inflation. So we know that inflation sort of is more compositionally complicated than what they're discussing. Is GDP also more compositionally complicated than the way they look at it? The, the way I look at it, it seems like, you know, if your GDP is growing because of financial services, that won't make it easier to buy orange juice at the grocery store. Right, right. You know, to put it you know, in incredibly simple terms, right? I'd like to hear sort of what your thoughts on that are. As a matter of fact, it's funny you should bring that up because one of the things that, that is marked as a negative indicator in Mexico leading up to the financial crisis was the increasing percentage of GDP that was actually just financial activity. So this mm -hmm. really was just repricing the same thing, that Exxon is still Exxon. But if we reprice it higher, you know, and so that doesn't really mean we have more stuff. And not that the price of Exxon goes into GDP. But those people who are carrying out the financial transactions in this industry, if there's more turnover in the stock market, then they have more business, then incomes go up. And so that, that does get added to GDP. So, yeah, very much so. That, uh, again, you know, all the stuff I just said about inflation was all, all that I got from neoclassical economists. But they don't, that, that's the difference between the people who collect the data and the people who are writing the theories. The, the people who collect the data, I'm sure, believe those same theories, but when they get down to having to write down these details, they're actually fairly good about writing down you know, what caused inflation, for example. And so we do have those data for GDP, and this has been, your specific example has been pointed to for some time, the rising percentage of GDP that's dominated by real estate and finance, which doesn't really, you know, it's not the same thing as we have more stuff. So no, that, that makes a difference as well. And, yeah. um, but we don't talk about that in, in neoclassical economics at the theoretical level. They do when they collect the data, but those two end up getting split apart. I don't know if you're aware of a paper by um, Paul Romer, who is at neoclassical, who uh, won the Nobel Prize in, in, in uh, neoclassical economics. And he, he talks about that neoclassical, his own school of thought, macroeconomics has gone backwards for 30 years. I would only disagree with him on it's been further longer than that. And also it's worse than he thinks. But he wrote this really hard hitting piece saying that we have now entered an era of post real macroeconomics where nobody cares about reality at all anymore. And I happened to be on a panel with him 
before he got the Nobel Prize. I like to think I'd put him over the top by being on the panel. Um, and I was talking to him about this paper. And he said, oh, my God, he has caused so much hell for this paper. Not because his logic, nobody attacked his logic, but how dare you say such things? And I guess we're all susceptible to that, this sort of ancestor worship within, you know, the academic disciplines. But I think he's absolutely right that there's, we're just, this this real business cycle theory, well, as Romer says in his piece, it's like they're saying that fairies cause recessions, you know, that it has nothing to do with, pe- with people anymore. It's all these external events. So... On the one hand, I totally agree with what you're saying about breaking down GDP into sectors, and we can find these data as put out by neoclassical economists in these various government uh, organizations, but then it doesn't seem to seep over into the theory part. Um, Could it be that they are incentivized to care less about sort of the dominance of financial services because places like Goldman Sachs will pay them $500,000 a year to be their consultant? I think there's some of that. I actually had this conversation uh, with Jeff um, Epstein a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned it as something I wanted to bring up uh, in our talk, and so I'll mention it again here. A lot of of, of MMT supporters who, who are not economists talk about there being a conspiracy with you know, neoclassical economics and neoliberalism and so forth. And most of my economist colleagues are neoclassicals, all right? And they honestly believe it. They are also political liberals. Neoclassical, well, economists in general, which is gonna mean neoclassical economists, vote Democrat at a ratio of about two and a half to one over Republican. Now, granted, I think we all agree that what, what Democrat is today isn't what it should be, but nevertheless, they view themselves as political liberals, and yet they buy into this theory. Is there a level at which Goldman Sachs funding a seat for free enterprise at a university has an impact? Absolutely. But your rank and file uh, is what's fascinating and horrifying. Still believe the stuff that I that I sat through in grad school and thought to myself, my God, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. They bought into it. They're like, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, but they still view themselves as helping people. And I'll tell you the interesting thing. I think a big part of it is they've never heard any alternative at all. They don't know MMT. I mean, they, they probably have a bigger chance of it today than any anything other than Marxism before. But um, one of my colleagues at work is a, a neoclassical. And I had written a piece for a neoclassical journal on post-Keynesian economics. Uh, the, I knew the author from years ago, and he said, would you write a piece explaining post-Keynesianism to neoclassicals? I was like, that's a very good idea. So... I wrote the piece, and I sent it off to Paul Davidson and Victoria Chick, two very well-known post-Keynesian economists, and they, they gave back comments. And I thought, John, you're an idiot. You should send it to a neoclassical, because that's going to be the audience. You should send it to a neoclassical to see what questions they would naturally have. So I sent it to this colleague of mine, and he was like flabbergasted. He was like, but there must be a tendency towards full employment, because sometimes we're there. I was like, well, that's not the same thing as saying that it tends towards it. It's just saying that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes in the desert it rains, you know, but but the lack of rain doesn't cause more rain. And that's what neoclassicism is saying about unemployment. The lack of full employment causes then the conditions that create full employment. He's like, oh, okay. Uh, and then he said, um, I was surprised you put Milton Friedman and Paul Krugman in the same school of thought. I said, well, they are to me. I mean, 
you know, are Baptists and Catholics the same? Well, if you're a Buddhist, they're very much the same, you know, and so I'm a Buddhist and they're, they're the same. So anyway, I mentioned all this to him and it was just all very nice man, very, very left-leaning. And uh, he just had never heard it before. Do you know that of late he has been sending me pieces critical of neoclassical economics? It just never occurred to him. So I think that's almost worse than there being a conspiracy. Because a conspiracy we can uncover, but honest ignorance is awful hard to fight. Uh, so, so yes, I do think there's something to saying that there aren't any big, there's not a lot of big money behind Marxist chairs of a professorship at universities. There's plenty of free market stuff. But there's the rank and file people that worry me that they really honestly, truly believe this stuff. Well, we should let, let's get into a little bit more about about what they believe, because it seems like based on my study of their writings, you know, um, like for example, uh, Blanchard, Olivier Blanchard put out a, a book. Uh, it's still in the sort of open comments stage, but you, yeah. can, you can find it for free online. And, and he talks about the sort of inherent hyperinflationary and you know, financial instability ramifications of a low interest rate environment that is sort of, you know, taken as a given. And, and a lot of these other papers that, you know, implicitly or, or explicitly are sort of parroting the, the same sort of idea that, you know, if we keep interest rates low, you know, people will gamble the economy into oblivion. There will be massive currency flight, basically everything that didn't happen to Japan, you know, and the United States in the last several years, they're saying, right. oh, of course, that's going to happen. And yeah. it's a, a magical mystery why it hasn't happened already. It seems like a careful examination of the incentive relationships between the actors who would actually make the decisions, the economic actors, you know, the, the businesses, the people, the governments. Yeah. The, the, the incentives that they have, if you look at them, you, you'd understand why these results aren't happening, or if they are happening to a certain extent, you'd know how to correct them. You know, it seems like there are, are structural policies, there are regulatory policies that could sort of address some of their concerns to the extent that they're even salient. Yeah. Why is it that mainstream economists don't like to, to talk about some of these empirical problems with their theory and then the, yeah. the possible solutions for their theory. I, I tend to think that economists who believe in the free market don't like to talk about what government could be doing to make the free market run more efficiently. But I, I wonder if you think it's, it's deeper than that. Yeah. Uh, some guy named Einstein once said, and I keep quoting this over and over in, in publications, theory determines what you see. So theory determines whether or not you even think to look at those things. Let me give you a quick example. We had a, a really nice and good neoclassical economist in our department at one point who was doing uh, research on education. And the specific question she had was, what led school districts to decide to have honor, uh, not honors level class, or the ones where you, where you get um, credit for college, uh, AP classes. Yeah. Yeah, AP classes. And so she had this regression analysis that she went over and so forth. And I raised my hand and said, did you actually ask any administrators? And she said, oh no, I hadn't thought about that. Whereas to us, 
that would be like one of the first things you would do is to sort of, you know, background research. Okay, you know, you have X number of AP classes. When did you decide to put these in and so forth? Uh, it never occurred to her to do it. So your whole thing about if you stop and think about the underlying uh, motivations and incentives facing people, then some of this makes sense. Unless you already have in your head a different set of those that you have never questioned, which is what she was doing. She already had in her head, this is the way it must work. And so I'm going to pull and obviously based on other people's research as well, but I'm going to pull out these particular variables, run my regression and see what happens rather than go out and actually talk to the people. And I'll tell you, there's a, an active bias against doing that in mainstream economics, because what they say is what people tell you and how they really behave are not the same thing. Okay. But I feel like I'm kind of smart enough to try to, uh, isn't that part of our job to sort of hear what you say in terms of what you're talking about, your behavior. And some of it is going to be quite accurate. You know, I do this because, you know, I, I, I shop around before I buy a new stereo or whatever, you know, for these reasons. And some of it is going to be, this is why I think I do it, but it's not why I do it. But we don't, we don't approach it that way. We feel as if, and I say we here as, as you know, mainstream economics, we already know what the incentives are and the, the cultural factors and the psychological factors are really unimportant. You know, another example here is there was this guy, uh, Thomas Oberlechner. He was a Harvard PhD in psychology, and he was interested in, in currency markets. And I thought, oh, my God, I started reading his stuff. I said, I wish I could do this, but I don't have the expertise you have. And the, the data, the things you're discovering are, are fascinating. He was using his psychology background to interview participants in the, in the currency market, you know, dealers, asking them questions like, what's your primary source of information? And uh, what's most important to you about the information you get? He also asked them about their metaphor for how they viewed the way the economy, uh, the, the way the, the market worked. And he's a smart guy. He knew where to say, this is what they think they're looking at. But in reading between the lines, they really view it this way. In other words, the neoclassical view that, well, what would be the point of asking people what their incentives are when we can't trust what they're saying anyway? It's not true because if you, if you were trained, you know how to at least attempt to split those things up. And, you know, it, it goes further back than this. You know, you're building an argument, right? You have a series of premises and a conclusion. Where do you get your premises? Do you get your premises from empirical observation or do you get them from intuition? Now, obviously, we all use some of each, but neoclassicism leans heavily towards the idea that it is intuition. That there's a famous quote in neoclassical economics. If you asked economists to study, uh, to, to explain the behavior of horses, they wouldn't go out and look at horses. They would sit in their offices and think to themselves, what would I do if I were a horse? And that is absolutely dead on. That they think to themselves that they will understand more about the world through their intuition of imagining what would it be like to be a consumer than to actually ask consumers. So I think that's a big um, you know, where, where's your feedback from the real world that causes you to change your model? Over and over and over, we've had things happen like the financial crisis that did not fit with their models, and they end up saying, uh, yeah, but in the long run, it works. There's a cartoon I like to share if I'm doing a presentation. Uh, it looks like these cave people are standing next to a uh, canyon, and they have one of the cave people standing on a, uh, on a sort of a seesaw lever, and they drop a rock on the other end, and the person flies off and falls right into the canyon. 
And the uh, K people say, well, um, it didn't work again. But it's a sound theory. And underneath it says the, the, you know, the world's first economist. And that's exactly right. I, I could give you another quote from a book that's lying just over here on exchange rate theory, where the author says about a, a theory called purchasing power parity, that we have seen so far in the chapter that there are compelling reasons to believe that it should work. However, the evidence says otherwise, but they still keep it. They still keep it. So these sort of should we go in and I don't want to say that I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush here, but generally speaking in the discipline, um, there's very little feedback from errors in prediction of what happened in the real world to change in the model because what you're describing doesn't happen. I have two questions. The first is about sort of, I guess they're, they're basically the same question. So what, what goes into their theories? Because it, it seems like there are certain things that might be difficult to model and difficult to, you know, put cleanly in a mathematical equation, right. for example, this, you know, these behavioral questions, it seems like it could be very difficult, even if you got accurate data to sort of fit that cleanly into an right. equation that, you know, was looking at GDP and interest rates, because you'd have to come up with, you know, very precise coefficients for how, you know, those behavioral incentives would, would affect and it could result in, you know, a lot of noise or just, or just a messy theory that would be imprecise, even if it had sort of accurate empirical assumptions. And sort of the, the related second half of that question is like, do they like their theories? Like when they say, oh, it should work in theory, is part of that because they've attained a certain amount of sort of mathematical cleanliness that they are valuing above the possibility of, um, you know, gaining more sort of information that could make it more complicated. Right. Um, no, I, I think it was Paul Davidson, the famous post-Keynesian economist, who said it's, it is better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. And he's talking about the exact same thing, that when I took um, international trade theory at the PhD level, and I'm proud to say that I earned the highest grade in the class, and I was standing at the grocery store in line not long after I finished that course, and I suddenly thought to myself, if everybody else in line knew I just finished a PhD level class in trade theory, I wouldn't be able to answer a single question they logically had. What's our biggest export? I have no idea. Who's our biggest trading partner? Well, it's either A or B because we always did country A and country B, you know, and, and mm -hmm. um, nothing. You know, why is our industrial heartland collapsing? I have no earthly idea. But if you need me to invert a matrix, by God, I can do that because we, we did nothing but math and, and it was fun. I like math, but I learned nothing about the real world. And furthermore, and this is getting back to your question, furthermore, one of the things we learned was you get past maybe two countries and two goods, we can model that easily. Two countries and three goods, oh, now it gets complicated. Three countries and three goods, we get a number of possible different answers. We, we lose the precision. So let's not do that. Even though it turns out in the real world, there are more than three countries and more than three goods. We are relying uh, for policy on the models that are assuming maybe, you know, two, uh, maybe two countries and three goods or so forth. But we couldn't get past that and still have the math work in a way that left it precise. 
So we just didn't do it. And that's a problem. So that's exactly what you're speaking to that. Yes, when it gets to a point where ah, I could take that into account and it sounds like it's probably important, but then I can't close out the model, then we just don't take it into account. I see. The last time I spoke to Jeff on the podcast, we talked about sort of the difference between accuracy and precision. And it seems mm. exactly like what you were saying was it was a Paul Davidson was saying. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Where you can have, I think we, we were talking about like sort of in predicting employment and you could say, you know, the, the minimum wage is a very precise measure of, you know, whether or not people are going to want to come work in that town. But yeah. A much less precise measure would be sort of, you know, how much pollution is in the town, but that might very well be a major factor. They might not want to move there because it's, it's polluted, but it's right, right. really hard to pin down, even if people are honest about how much they hate pollution, it's hard, really hard right. to pin down exactly how that's going to affect. That's right, uh, because you don't know how to measure it from one person to the next either. You don't know, they're not all using the same standard either. So even if you could ask every single person in town, how much they cared about pollution on a scale of one to 10, my nine might be completely different to somebody else's nine because it's my uh, subjective interpretation. So, you know, I mean, that's, it makes it hard, but if we want to come up with decent policy about the real world, then you have to try to tackle problems like that. And economics has become much more complicated about little tiny unimportant things. Well, like, like um, Paul Romer was saying, that we've ended up with these really complex models. And he says in the article, so complex that it is very doubtful that the referee really bothered to check the math. Um, and so that's kind of a problem when that's the, the major contribution is the math. And now we're, we're boiling economic activity down to being the result of random events, no longer anything that had to do with people because people are complicated, but you know, random events, you, know, you could just make up some sort of stochastic, you know, uh, term and, yeah. and have that you know, feed in. It, it seems like there's a bit of a paradox happening though, because if you, because some of their models are, you know, incredibly complicated. Like if you read some of the stuff that's being published, but is that just the result of complication that's being layered on top of a very simple thing? Right, right, right. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, some of them are quite complicated. I guess it varies. Some of them are quite complicated because they're trying to take into account, you know, 10 different layers of things. And in general, I don't see a problem. I, I don't see modeling things as a negative, but it comes back to what Keynes was saying. He's like, well, but that's not, we don't expect that to be the, the end that we're done. Right. Uh, it's like, okay, well, this indicated that if the exchange rate does so-and-so, then exports will do so-and-so. But now let's stop and think about that and see if that really makes enough sense to actually base a policy on it. You know, there, there's a, a, a literature that was started by Eileen Grable's husband, strangely enough, George Martino, about uh, ethics and economics and about we don't have an ethical statement like most other disciplines do. We figure, you know, well, economics doesn't have to do with ethics. So, but he says that one of the things we could really benefit from is first do no harm. That, you know, before you, we feel a tendency to want to say, ah, we should employ so-and-so policy. And he says, sometimes it's better not to do anything at all. We, we have this, it would be like if you went to the doc, every time you went to the you know, physician, that the physician said, okay, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, rather than let's wait a week or so and see what happens. You know, maybe this will, you know, maybe I don't see all the, the factors going on here. So I, I guess I, I bring that up because unless you decide your model really showed something, you might not decide, okay, so let's raise tariffs, you know, uh, and, and so 
they kind of need the precision, the idea of the precision in order to guide them in what they think they should be doing. And that is, I should be recommending a policy and not necessarily saying, well, let's just sit like it is for a while. So you think that uh, some of their models are designed for the purpose of being able to achieve a statistically significant result? As a matter of fact, that's exactly one of the things that, uh, I mean, maybe not in the design, but in the actual eventual use of it. George DiMartino related the story to what he came to visit uh, TCU. He said that this, the, the economic practitioners out there have a very different world than the scholars. I don't have a deadline for when I have to finish a paper. I write as long as I feel like I need to write and I send it off. But people who are practitioners, who are, policy, who are employed by policymakers, for example, they have deadlines. And he said that this blew him away. He had never thought about this, that um, the, the right answer on Capitol Hill at 310 is useless when the hearing is at three o'clock. So just give me an answer. Just, just give me an answer of some sort. He related a horrifying story that I shouldn't tell my students because it's very depressing. But this fellow was working for the state government and he was already drinking a lot because he hated his job, e economist. And he was asked by his supervisor, give me an estimate of the impact of, of you know, this new policy we're talking about. And the economist in question said, OK, it'll create between you know, this many and this many jobs. And the supervisor said, no, no, I want a number. So, all right. So he. You know, so he initially tried to be, you know, on the safe side. It'll be between this and this. Now he's told, I want a number. So he said, okay, he picked the midpoint. His supervisor said, that's not big enough. Well, what the hell? That's what I got. You know, that, that, but, but, you mm -hmm. know, obviously. So anyway, he goes home and he's playing with his, with his son with blocks. And they've stacked up one, two, three, four, five. So he texts his boss. It'll create 12,345 jobs. Boss says, that's not big enough. So he takes off the one and he puts on a six. It'll create 23,456 jobs. Boss says that's not big enough. So he takes off the two and put, you know, put, puts a number, puts a seven at the back. It'll yeah. create 34,567 jobs. Boss says that's it. It's based on nothing. So, okay. Right. So, yeah, so yeah, no, that, that, that's a whole nother side to all these problems uh, that, that's outside of, uh, you know, scholarship and, and, uh, these people building models is when they actually get around to applying them, now they have a whole different, you know, well, a lot of these people are hired guns. And, and this, now this is where, you know, some of the things about, about um, uh, uh, the conspiracy stuff can, can play a role. I mean, when Jerry Jones built the Cowboys stadium and he hired an economic impact group, they knew what, what answer they wanted. I mean, they, they, you know, there was no way they were going to say, oh, yeah, it's not going to do much for the city of Arlington at all. Uh, and obviously, politically, there are those uh, issues as well. So, but I guess that's true of any discipline. Yeah. That's not just us. Yeah, that's fascinating, complex stuff. I want to I want to take a look at a specific example of something that I think sort of illustrates sort of the additional information that you need that you know MMTers would would tell you to look at. Um, so, in in South Africa. They had a COVID-19 loan guarantee scheme running in, 20, in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. The South African Treasury guaranteed loans issued by commercial banks to South African businesses at a fixed subsidized rate of 7.5%, which was 2.5% lower than the market rate of yeah. 10%. Um, and there were a number, well, let's first of all, let's say what 
we think what I expect neoclassicals to say would happen if that would happen. It, right. They would say, oh no, there's going to be way too much lending. There's going to be so much growth. It's going to be unsustainable. And then it's going to over investment. They'll invest in things that the economy really didn't need is what they'll say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there were a number of things sort of baked into the scheme to make sure that didn't happen. There were really stringent requirements on who to qualify for the loans and what sort of expenses they could use the money for. Right. Uh, the qualifying businesses had to be up to date with its other loan payments. The money could only be used for operational expenditures, not to pay dividends, make investments, right. pay bonuses, right. or to pay off other loans. Yeah. And if you look at what it's, these, these are what I what call sort of structural factors or yeah. what Nathan Tangus would call non-interest rate monetary policy. Yeah. And if you look at all those things and, and assume that people actually are motivated by those incentives to, you know, depend on those limitations, you'd say, okay, well, there shouldn't actually be that much lending. And in reality, that's what happened. There wasn't that much lending. They had right. uh, significantly smaller, um, demand for these loans than anticipated and, yeah. and and there was no sort of you know runaway overheating of the south african economy it actually i believe they were in a recession during those years yeah and it seems like you need that information to predict what's going to happen but also you can use sort of what you've learned to design policy about what um sort of monetary system you want to design. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. That, um, I mean, that made perfect sense to me, and especially the not paying out in dividends. You know, if, if you're coming from a school of thought that doesn't perceive that as a problem in the first place, then it's the Einstein quote again. Theory determines what you can see. So they're not worried about full employment. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about overinvestment. And they also see, it, it's so obviously not true. It, it came up in the Drummonds and Fister paper that the interest rate is somehow a reflection of people's desires to save and not save, when in fact the Fed sets it. It's clearly a policy variable, but they're, they're treating it as a reflection of, you know, of agents' uh, preferences. And so my experience has been in explaining economics from our perspective to a non-economist, it makes perfect sense to them. Now, Perhaps that's a bad thing, uh, but I think it's a really good thing. People who are actually, I've had people in class who are you know, business people, and it makes much more. We used to teach in the MBA program, uh, the econ department did, and they really liked, I just did post-Keynesian economics. They thought it made so much more sense. But when you're constrained in the way that, that these neoclassicals are in thinking about uh, macro issues to where they're about allocation, they're not about the level of economic activity, then changing an interest rate is an allocation issue, and oh no. You know, that's going to cause, as you say, all this borrowing and so forth. It will upset the natural order of things. I, I don't know what to think anymore. It, it, it's, it, I go back and forth between thinking, surely they can't all truly believe this. It's like I was saying earlier. And then I'll see a presentation from a colleague that I know well and know what their political positions are on things. And I think, how on earth can you believe what you're explaining to me right now? That same colleague I mentioned earlier. Back when I was department chair the first time, uh, that person was an untenured faculty member, and I went and visited their course so I could write up a you know a um, review of their teaching, and they were doing macro, and they said something about the uh, golden rule of investment or something like that, 
to get the exact right savings amount to generate the exact right level of investment and how we needed more savings, you know, to that would generate more investment. And it was a very good lecture. And I, I said it was on my you know official report. And I, but I did say this personally, I said, but if people are saving more than why would firms invest more? And he literally said, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. And fascinating. Yeah. So that's the kind of people we're dealing with. Honest. Yeah. You know, obviously, there's you know, conspiracy and power at some levels, but at the grassroots level of neoclassicism, these are mostly political liberals who bought into enough of the stuff in grad school to bother to stay with this and believe that they're still helping the world with these things that make no sense to me whatsoever on, on a very, it, it, the things you explained a minute ago. Uh, very quickly, you would come to the realization, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, yeah, and, and this is, they have in place measures to make sure that these problems don't arise, but it doesn't occur to them. So I don't know what to tell you. I, it turned me off when I was in grad school, and so I, I didn't buy into it. But lots of, I think, really well-meaning, good people do, and I don't get it. How much of it is, is the sort of ideological bias against what they pursue is what they perceive, excuse me, as intervention? You know, when I was, a, you know, formally trained. I came out, even though I didn't like a lot of it, and it was reading this post-Kantian stuff, I came out believing that we should come up with mechanisms that kind of manage themselves, self-regulating things, which in a sense, job guarantee is. But I was thinking more, you know, very little intervention. The less intervention, the better. I even thought that. And it was after I read Alfred Eichner's book, he was a, he passed away a long time ago, really nice man. Uh, he did a sort of post-Kantian microeconomics Um and I'm reading through his book and everything is hitting home and everything is making sense. And at the end, he got to his policy recommendations, which involved a lot of intervention. I was like, well, no, I just want some rule we can just make up and follow it. And it hit me. But if I bought all the foundational stuff, I cannot reject the conclusions that logically follow from those. So even I was very much, I guess, affected by this idea of, of this self-managing systems. So yes, I, that's a long way of saying, I think that is part of it. And I think that that uh, I, I came out with some of that too. I mean, it, it's, it's an appealing idea to think that we don't have to do stuff that can fix itself, but it's just not true. So. Well, first, I got two, two questions. What first, what was the name of that Alfred Eichner book on post-Keynesian microeconomics? Oligo uh, let's see, Megacorp and Oligopoly. He was talking about uh, that, you know, the, the sort of at, the, the sort of most important firm in a macro economy was the oligopoly uh, and, and not the perfectly competitive firm like you have in neoclassicism. It was really interesting. I, I, from what I understand of friends who still pursue that, um, it's somewhat outdated now, but it's a nice foundation. Uh, so I really enjoyed that book. Uh, excellent. Thank you. I'll definitely look that up. Uh, the second question is... Um... Where, where did it where did it come from within yourself like the the desire to come up with a uh, you know a very simple self-regulating policy rule yeah that's a good question um it definitely was on the left and you know physics was my first major like i said but that didn't last but a couple of weeks 
And then I went to political science because I thought, oh my gosh, I should be doing political science. That's what I'm really, you know, uh, passionate about is international relations. And then I'm reading Adam, I took an econ class, uh, reading Adam Smith and, and David Ricardo. And there are some things that I do think make sense. For example, an excess demand for a good or a service is going to tend to drive the price up. Okay. You know, uh, excess supply is going to drive the price down. Uh, okay. Uh, fair enough. The day after Easter, all the Easter egg dye is on sale because we now clearly have an excess supply of Easter egg dye. So it's like, okay, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see how that mechanism would work. And I, this kind of, for me, combined the social focus of political science with the sort of formal modeling focus of, of physics. Um, but part of what they teach you is, you know, that the intersection of that supply and demand curve is sort of a natural resting point. And that comes along with the excess supply and the excess demand. Uh, it's mm -hmm. part and parcel of that. So the problem is when you decide that, you know, to sort of narrow it down to only those factors. Um, because, you know, if you start making it more complicated, which is more realistic, then it, it uh, doesn't give you the clear results. But, you know, I, I was very much wanting to save the world. And I thought, here's a way to save the world. It doesn't have to be that complicated. And it does. Well, actually, honestly, and maybe this is why the MMT and job guarantee uh, uh, attract me so much. To me, that's quite simple. Uh, the unemployed identify themselves. We don't have to come up with, you know, oh, gee, I wonder how many people are, uh, I wonder how big the stimulus package should be. We don't have to figure that out. You know, we have to figure out a formula and people self-identify and it closes itself down as unemployment goes down. It opens back up as unemployment goes up. So I guess I still have a bit of that tendency, but just, just um, in terms of, I guess I've also come to understand that perfect should not be the enemy of good. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's right. got to work better than what we've got. So, whereas the old neoclassical thing was not quite perfect, but it was close. So, but I was in I was in search of a of a simple answer. I think is maybe the easiest way. I see. It's interesting that you can sort of frame the job guarantee as being a non-interventionist intervention because of the automatic aspects of that. I think that right. that sort of opens up a whole can of goods as to you know subcategorizations of how much intervention to do, but. Right. We can, we can uh, that, that's a conversation for another yeah. day. I have a couple more questions and then I want to sort of recap the second half of our talk right. before we head out. Um, so the first question is, do you think that MMT and post-Keynesian economics needs to be more upfront about the political economy implications of its framework? For example, if, if, if we're saying that, you know, interest rates, uh, you know, should be at zero or that there should be a job guarantee and that'll be fine the mainstream economists will say no that won't be fine because the market will react this way the sort of thing that i i would say that i don't think every mmt economist always says directly is that those negative market reactions will only happen if you let them and we have good reason to believe that we know how to stop some of those things for hap from happening, like in the example of the South African um, the loan guarantee scheme, right. that we can impose qualitative limitations on lending. And in fact, maybe we should. Yeah. Um, it, I feel like once you take the MMT framework as a whole and understand what we want to do and what we think is preventing us from getting there, it does require making 
several changes to sort of like the structure of the economy. Um, and yeah, do you think we should be upfront with saying ex exactly how much we yeah. want to change? I think this may go back to what Jamie Galbraith was saying about the mainstream economics discipline being gone. There's no point in trying to convince them. So, so, so I don't think that we, that we would gain a lot. We could certainly do it on a small scale, but gain a lot by trying to convince Paul Krugman and, and uh, um, uh, Larry Summers and so forth that we're right and they're wrong uh, on the basis of, of you know, sort of the political ramifications. They just don't get it. They're working with a different theory and they, they don't see the same world that we see. Um, but with politicians, we've had much more success, I think, and certainly reaching out to those who are, you know, generally, you know, on the, you know, uh, by the way, the, the beautiful monitor I have for my gaming is a curved monitor and it, it's AOC is the company. So every time I turn it on, I get to see AOC on there. And I was like, yes, all right, hope, um, <laughs> yeah, Bernie Sanders and AOC and so forth, uh, even though they might not get it all, um, they're very much in line with the politics of it. So. I think that uh, you know what 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 uh, Galbraith was saying about you know we need to talk to policymakers. We're wasting our time talking to economists, and we should focus on what you're talking about, and that is the, the you know the the, um, the practical political ramifications of it. So um, yeah, I think that's right. I think we just need to focus on the right people um, and, and not waste our time with economists anymore, which is still tempting because it's my discipline. So I hate to see it, you know. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah. Oh, it's incredibly something. Um, and the second is sort of like related to some of these sort of uh, political ramifications of sort of a new framework. Did you get a chance to read um, some of those proposals that Warren Mosler had written? Yes. Yes, I did. And, and they were very consistent with things that I've read from other post-Keynesians, either directly or, you know, indirectly. I mean, all the way back to, I mentioned a paper by Steve Keen earlier um, from 1995 in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics. Steve Keen was voted as the economist who most accurately forecast the financial crisis. And mm -hmm. um, he did so on the basis of the model he built in that paper. And he talks about very much the same issues in terms of the way banking should work. Uh, and the, the, the um, Paul Davidson intermediate macro textbook that I, I had been using for intermediate macro talks about the, the set, you know, when, when banks were making mortgages and then selling them, this creates a, a, a perverse incentive. Uh, that, you know, one of the one of the recommendations that was in that piece by Mosler was when you make a loan, you hold it. You know, your benefit from making a loan is the future loan payments because it changes the incentive structure. So, no, I, I didn't see anything in there I, I disagreed with. And I think it all was very consistent with the idea of. No, the private sector does not price assets just right, as Krugman once said in a piece after the financial crisis, he said something about, you know, what did we get wrong? Well, we thought that the financial sector priced assets just right. No, no, no. Your school thought thought that the financial sector priced assets just mm -hmm. right. Ours never did. And so ours is why we have, because of our perception, is why we have the sort of recommendations that you mentioned in the, in the uh, Mosler piece. Yeah, and for the listeners at home, yeah, um, you can read this piece. We'll probably link it in the, in the description, yeah. but he talks about a lot of things that, that banks are allowed to do that externalize risk and de-incentivize themselves from finding credit-worthy borrowers. Right. Um, you know, and it's the, the exact opposite sort of thing that uh, the South African banks were required to do in, in 2020 and in 2021. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And also we need to, um, one of the things that Keen says at the end of his piece is that we need to 
encourage you know sound banking that, that stays away from speculation. I'm not wearing it as, as clearly as he did, but also active policy, not just setting up a rule like John Harvey would like. And we sit back. He said because the financial sector will figure out a way around it. They have every incentive to make sure that they can hide things on their balance sheet, that they can come up with new you know derivatives and so forth. Said so we have to be active and continuous in our monitoring of the financial sector. Awesome. All right. I'm going to recap the second half of our conversation, which was about sort of why neoclassicals have a hard time uh, coming to grips with what MMT is trying to say. So the first is that some of them never have never thought about sort of the deficiencies in their empirical assumptions. Uh, the second is that they don't believe people actually do what they say that they are going to do for the reasons why they say it. The third is a bias towards intuitive logic where they think they can work out what people are going to do by imagining themselves in their own, in, in that position. Yeah. And the fourth is a bias towards the long run over the short run. The fifth is a bias towards models that should work because they are clean in, in, a certain sense because they yeah. have precise variables. The sixth is the need to ch achieve a statistically significant result uh, in order for their models to be published. They need, need to be able to show that we predicted something. The seventh is uh, deadlines and the need to achieve a certain result in the models being put out by political advisors to politicians. And then the eighth is a bias against intervention in markets, which is possibly uh, due to what drew them into econo ec economics in the first place, which is right. the desire to find sort of like a clean mathematical solution uh, to these problems that you can right. sort of sit back and say, we did it. Now we don't have to mess around too much right. anymore. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot to that. And, and you know, the, the, the last thing you mentioned about the clean, you know, way to, to I, I'm sure that that all these economists who are talking about economic development and say, well, you need to lower your trade barriers, that they really believe that, despite the fact that they, and now, there's been pushback. The world is different today than it was when I started my PhD, you know, back in, when, when was it? 1983. But um, they really think they're helping. Again, I'm sure there's some conspiracies at some level, and I'm, I'm sure that you know what the Heritage Foundation funds and so forth is is, is a, uh, could be influenced by, you know, the fact that uh, I'm a very rich person and I want to think that I want to maintain my position of power, but um, I don't know. I think that's almost more difficult that they really truly believe that well, your only problem is that you have these high tariff barriers, and they're totally ignoring the fact that these are basically Spanish immigrants from some years ago wielding power over Aztecs and Mayans and, and Incas. And that doesn't even enter into the conversation because they don't think it's important. So a lot of problems. Yeah, a lot of problems. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. Very fun, very informative. Um, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had done I hadn't done a, um, a podcast in a while, and I think Jeff was sitting there waiting for my term as chair to end. Uh, and so as soon as it did, he's like, "Okay, will you do one?" Sure, I have another one in August. Uh, so always happy to try to fight for the cause. All right, awesome.
for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app. Thank you.